Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? Matt, we're, we're talking H. pylori. We're talking obesity. I'm here with my great friend, Matt Watto. What could be better? I'm, I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> Once again, Paul, it is a weeknight and late, <laughs> and we are recording a podcast. What more would I be wanting to do with my life? When I was so, a seven-year-old child, <laughs> my parents asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. This was exactly what I described to them, to the letter. So it things are coming uh, up, Williams. <laughs> Tonight, we are going to recap two fantastic episodes that were very practice-changing for me. We talked about H. pylori, and again, we're going to talk about obesity medicine, some frequently asked questions. And Paul, before we get to that, can you remind the audience, who are who are we and what do we do? <laughs> yeah, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Ordinarily, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. This is our Peabody Award-winning. Someday we're going to get sued for that, probably. I should probably stop saying that. But the <laughs> Tales from the Curbside, where we recap uh, two episodes that are, in this case, very loosely related, but we sort of go through it and sort of highlight the pearls that we thought were especially useful or meaningful. In this case, we're talking about H. pylori uh, with Dr. Safori and obesity medicine FAQs with Dr. Cody Stanford. So, um, a lot of high yield stuff in both of these episodes. I think, Matt, we we're going to start with H. pylori. Yeah. First, I just want to remind the audience that for these shorter episodes, we uh, to give ourselves a break, these are not CME uh, available for CME, but the two episodes we're talking about were individually available. So if you go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org, then you can claim your free CME credit through VCU Health. And now with that, episode 322 h pylori with george safori this was produced and with graphics by the great beth garbatelli now dr beth garbatelli paul i mean you know so proud she did it she did it. <laughs> no surprises there all right to start us off paul i wanted to talk a little bit about the epidemiology of this because this is uh, th a lot of this was new to me I, I i thought h pylori was like oh yeah just throw some antibiotics at him for two weeks and and you're done um not that easy but uh, H. pylori mostly is is a childhood illness, and it, it's in the U.S. It, it is here, not as prevalent as in some other places, but it's really a, a marker of like cramped living conditions, and it tends to spread through f families just because the way that it's spread, uh, fecal oral route. So you know, families get colonized with this, uh, which makes sense. And uh, that's one of the points that we'll come up with later about screening, um, why you, you might screen people who are first generation from a country where there's a high, high prevalence. And um, Paul, I wanted to ask you, like the symptoms of H. pylori, uh, we're going to talk about some maybe asymptomatic patients we might screen, but what makes you think about H. pylori? Yeah, well, I mean, before this episode or previously, I we, we've talked before about this. I probably lumped together GI symptoms or upper GI symptoms into sort of this one amorphous process that hopefully responded to proton pump inhibitors. So if you, regardless of whether you had heartburn symptoms or regurgitation or uh, postprandial fullness or, you know, epigastric pain, I just kind of hoped that that would respond to the same medication. And Dr. Safori advocated for really doing your due diligence, separating those things out into GERD versus dyspepsia when appropriate. Because GERD... It's pretty reasonable to treat with a proton pump inhibitor empirically, see how you do, and then kind of reassess your therapy. Dyspepsia should prompt you to do your H. pylori testing. And dyspepsia, as a reminder, are things like this um, this postprandial fullness or the, the epigastric pain that happens after meals. That is that is more dyspepsia than a GERD-type picture. So those... Those things should make you think H. pylori. Um, and then otherwise, the symptoms tend to be relatively nonspecific sort of GI stuff. You can have pain. You can feel kind of gassy. There can be bloating and belching. Um, but 
symptoms along those lines should all kind of prompt H. pylori testing, in which we'll get into um, what the best tests are for those. And and one of the overlaps between GERD and, and H. pylori when it comes to testing, if the person has bleeding or like unintentional weight loss, like you're you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> right. just go to right to endo- upper endoscopy for that, just just to make that point. It's uh, it seems obvious, but that is that's how it's going to be. And then Paul, talking about endoscopy. So for my patients under sixty, I think I'm okay to just do either a urea breath test or an H. pylori stool antigen. Most of the papers I was reading said they're they're fairly comparable, and so it, it's mostly just what, I, I know one's slightly better than the other, but in general, it's just like whatever they're comfortable with locally at your lab, just use that test. Um, they should both be okay. But what about patients over 60 year old, uh, over 60, how does that differ? Yeah, over 60, you've earned yourself upper endoscopy, which is not to say that you're not doing H. pylori testing. It's just the H. pylori testing you're doing is gonna be done via biopsy. And the, the reason for that, line of demarcation is over the age of 60, uh, statistically, these problems and symptoms are more likely to be caused by malignancy than under the age of 60. And so probably direct visualization um, is and a little bit more aggressive evaluation is probably warranted in your older patients. But in any case, regardless if you're having these symptoms, as you say, um, you know, even in the absence of red flag symptoms, you're, you're going to get yourself uh, H. pylori testing just over the age of 60. That puts you high risk enough that you actually warrant endoscopic evaluation as well. Now, and- Matt... Before we, we sort of ship our patients, say, who are, who are not getting endoscopic evaluation, let's say they're under the age of 60, but you have some suspicion for H. pylori or at least some reason to test, what, what kind of practical considerations are you thinking about and what kind, of, what kind of housekeeping do you have to do before you can send your patients off for testing? Well, let, let's let's deal with the easy one first. So proton pump inhibitors, those those should be held for at least a month. Uh, I think some of the guidelines say two weeks, but most of the people we've talked to, Paul, they're like, I like to wait at least four because you don't want to put someone through a test, regardless whether it's collecting their own stool or having an endoscopy, you don't want to put them through a test and have a lower chance of finding what you're looking for. So uh, off a of PPI, and I would throw in antibiotics into that category as well as just don't have the patient on that. With H2 receptor antagonists, it's a little more complicated because Dr. Safori said he doesn't like the patient to take those because the literature has been a little mixed as to how much it does or doesn't lower your yield. So it might affect your testing and you might get like a false negative. I don't know about you, Paul. Have you been? What have you been telling patients? Yeah, I I kind of keep them in my back pocket if needed. I mean, you it, apparently you can use antacids or calcium carbonate prior to testing for symptoms. You know, it's yeah. I think stopping a a PPI on someone who's using it for symptom control, regardless of the underlying etiology, it's it's kind of a, a challenging proposition depending on how severe your symptoms are. So I, I will yeah. tell them to avoid them if possible. If you need something and the antacids are covering it, then I then go ahead and do that. But that's my own personal practice, and certainly not what Doctor Safori recommended. Yeah, I, I've taken the same route. Uh, essentially, you know, can they get by? Um, hopefully, they can get the test, especially if it's a stool test. Hopefully, they can just collect it within a week. And then once they've sent the test, you can start them on PPI if you need to, uh, yeah. or certainly H2 receptor antagonist. But yeah, I do the same thing. Try to get by with the antacids. If I really need to, I'll put them on an H2 receptor antagonist. Um, the, for what it's worth, the, the New England Journal review by Dr. Crow from 2019, she did mention she thinks it's okay to do H2 receptor antagonists, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll leave it to you and your endoscopist if they're going for endoscopy, you know, what they, what they prefer. Um, but who to test? Cause we talked about testing patients with dyspepsia, right? We talked, of course, you're going to test people who have, uh, red flags, 
symptoms. But uh, here's how I would lump it together. So um, dyspepsia is one of the things. If someone has confirmed peptic ulcer disease, you know, those patients should be tested for H. pylori. There's two types of cancers that can be um, associated as well. So gastric cancer, anyone who has early gastric cancer, you should test for H. pylori because you're going to treat it if you find it. And same thing with low-grade, this malt maltoma, Paul, because it, it is, uh, if you treat H. pylori in those patients, it might actually treat the maltoma. Right. Um, for hematologic abnormalities, there's unexplained iron deficiency. Think about H. pylori. And then immune thrombocytopenia is is one of the other ones that you can think about. And then, Paul, what do you think about some of these, I guess, maybe softer recommendations? Uh, has this been practice changing for you? No, no, is the short answer. I mean, the, the soft recommendations mean like if someone is on long-term aspirin or NSAIDs, I, I'm probably, I, I will have a lower threshold to to evaluate, but it's not going to be a, a leading indication for me to actually do it. And right. same goes for the a family history of gastric cancer. I, I, you know, I will think of it though that doesn't come up all that often. And then the, the first generation immigrants from high prevalence countries, again, it's something where I might have a lower threshold to test, but it might not, I can't promise it's going to trigger me to sort of, that's the first thing I'm going to talk to this patient about. I'm not sure how right. that reflects your practice. I, I, I take the same, I, I just, I worry that we would have so many patients we're testing um, if it was the NSAID or aspirin use. I mean, hopefully I don't have a lot of patients on long-term NSAIDs, but I do have patients who are intermittently taking them over the long term. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm those ones I'm not as absolute on, but certainly the the earlier ones we talked about, um, I, I, am, I am testing. And then, Paul, the management, you know— Actually, before we get there, Matt, I just wanted to say oh, yeah. real quick, because the listeners may have noticed that we did not mention serologic testing for H. pylori, and that was— oh, I just want to be explicit about that. Um, Dr. Safori says he, as a gastroenterologist, he has never ordered them, um, and he made the point, if, if I remember correctly, that it's not the worst test in the world, but we have much better tests, so why not use the good tests? So, like, it just, it's not all that helpful a test, so you'll notice when we're talking about testing for H. pylori, serologic testing is nowhere part of the conversation, because it's just, it's not— as helpful as the other tests that we have, namely, um, obviously biopsies, but also the breath testing, the stool testing. So I just want to make sure I mention that out loud because I feel like that's a question that comes up sometimes. Yeah, and I know we got one message from a listener about this, and uh, I think they were just practicing in a different region where maybe they maybe it is used, but in in at least the the U.S. practice guidelines really just mention that. It, it'll be it'll be hard to interpret a H. pylori IgG. You know, you don't know if it's active infection. And um, it's just, like Paul was saying, the sensitivity, specificity-wise, all that stuff, it's just not not our best test. So we're just, we just don't really have cause to use it. I'm sure every every case, I'm sure you could think of a, of a situation where it might be helpful. But uh, for the most part, it's that's going to be few and far between. So, Paul... The management of H. pylori, I mean, this is, let, let's do my, I, I, we haven't done it yet on this episode, Paul, so I, I got to throw this to you. All right, so <laughs> I'm going to say something which maybe it's wrong, Paul, you'll tell me. Um, H. pylori, medications, super well tolerated, highly effective, very low rate of treatment failure. How am I doing? So, you know, of course, obviously all wrong. Um, and, you know, we were having this conversation before in terms of it is just bananas to me that we've not yet come up with a single pill regimen for 14 days that can manage H. pylori. That's just not anywhere close to what the actual practicality of treatment looks like. So having said that, Matt, what what should we be reaching for? Is, is there a preferred um, regimen according to Dr. Safori? 
Well, I wish I wish there was a clear-cut winner. I could say the preferred regimen we don't want to use is the clarithromycin-based triple therapy because there's such high rates of clarithromycin resistance. And the, this, the part of the problem with all these regimens, Paul, is it's like pill burden. They're taking these things for 10 days, give or take. And then they're, they're, there's a lot of just GI side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, just just upset stomach. So they're, they're hard regimens for patients to take. Right now, if you're, um, if you're practicing in the West uh, or in the U.S., Dr. Safori was telling us that he, he will often try a quadruple therapy, um, which is like bismuth, PPI, tetracycline, metronidazole, and, um, and then he'll retest. And if, if that doesn't work, then he's going to use a different regimen altogether. Often uh, levofloxacin would be either his second-line regimen if, if, if he didn't use it for the, the first round. Um, but that's, that's pretty much, those, those are two of the regimens. There's like eight or nine different regimens, Paul. The, the one of the main principles are avoid the, the clarithromycin based triple therapy as a, um, as a first line, unless you know the sensitivities and then don't use the same regimen twice. But Paul, any, does any of that differ from what you're doing or what you've seen done locally? No, no. I mean, I think that's fairly consistent. Um, and I, you know, I think we avoid the fluoroquinolone based therapy, um, for a lot of reasons initially, I think to keep it in our back pockets, but then also because we're just all terrified of medications that we used to hand out like candy 15 years ago. <laughs> um, I will say we, we talked a little bit about how Dr. Safori manages intolerance to the regimens. So it's just probably worth bringing up that, you know, you can do on Dancitron for the nausea. He has, God bless him, tried the isopropyl alcohol aromatherapy with the patients. <laughs> and he says it works some of the time. And then he did make the point that if patients start having you know diarrhea, he will actually probably consider seed of testing for sniff negative than loperamide. Because um, obviously if you're, Throwing antibiotics to someone, they start having diarrhea. There's a couple of reasons it could be, but you don't want to miss C. diff and give loperamide and cause problems that way. So there are things you can do to help patients manage the the GI side effects, but it's not none of it's great, unfortunately. Yeah, and just remember to retest the person. Wait about a month after they finish, because again, you want a month after antibiotics and after proton pump inhibitor therapy. So, and then you would you would retest. Now, Paul. At ACP, uh, the internal medicine meeting 2022, uh, I was home with COVID, but you were there. <laughs> but yep. uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, remotely see a talk by Dr. Brooks Cash, former Curbsiders uh, guest on our IBS episode, like in the 20s, Paul. That was like 300 plus episodes ago. <laughs> but uh, still, he's still great. And Dr. Cash was talking about the latest in H. pylori treatment. And it looks like this rifabutin-containing therapy, which is rifabutin, omeprazole, and amoxicillin. Um, there was an article by Graham uh, I can link to in the show notes for this this episode um, talking about that as, as an emerging therapy that looks like it's going to help because we have such a resistance problem that we needed to come up with new things. And Paul, the other new therapy that everyone's excited about is this phenoprazan. This is a potassium a potassium competitive acid blocker or PCAB. And I'm just going to say PCAB from now on, Paul, because it's hard to say. That feels best. Yeah. But this, this PCAB contain, uh, containing therapy, those seem really promising. Um, this is a, the PCABs are almost like, think of them as a newer, better form of proton pump inhibitor. They, they work um, on the same kind of like potassium, sodium, potassium, AT, uh, whatever, hydrogen, sodium, potassium, ATPase. But they, they seem to be longer acting. They seem to be a little bit more 
just stable in the acidic environment of the stomach. So there, there's a lot of things people are excited about with these, and I think we're going to start seeing these more often. They're already being used in the East, and uh, th- they seemed in a big meta-analysis by Rokas in 2021, Paul, uh, the venoprazan-containing therapy and the reverse hybrid therapy seemed like two of the winners um, out of eight therapies that they studied in the West, uh, levofloxacin-containing therapies were still doing okay, um, but the clarithromycin, metronidazole, and fluoroquinolones worldwide all have this increasing resistance. Now, Paul, do you, do you know what this reverse hybrid therapy is? I was going to ask you to define it because it sounds so cool, and I feel like it's the type of thing that we want to be able to throw out there, but we should probably be able to back it up. So what, what is a reverse hybrid therapy? Well, it, it is, it's where you're going to give 14 days of treatment, Paul, the first seven days, they're getting just a PPI and amoxicillin, and that and those two are going to continue for the full 14 days. But for the, the, the last seven days of that 14-day period, you're giving clarithromycin and metronidazole. So probably you're going to need to pull out your ondansetron and maybe your loperamide, <laughs> as you previously sure. talked and about. And your alcohol pads. Uh-huh. Yeah. But those, so it's it's sort of like you know you're that's that's why I guess it's the reverse hybrid. But it's so it's not just a clever name, Paul, which I always like when it's not just a clever name. <laughs> um, but it's that's like the triple Lindy. Yeah. So that's that's some cool stuff. So H pylori. Uh, to recap, I mean, I think the big the big points that the big points are just make sure to think about it in the groups that we talked about. Um, certainly, when people have dyspepsia, which which Paul told us how to differentiate from just your classic GERD, heartburn symptoms, and then make sure you retest people because it it is there's a lot of resistance out there. Paul, you wanna how do you wanna transition to our second topic? I'll let you start us off here. Um, well, I don't have your your expertise to transition, so all right, I'm gonna try this. Matt, would you like to talk about obesity medicine now? <laughs> I thought you never asked, Paul. <laughs> so this is number 324, Obesity Medicine FAQ with Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. This was, of course, produced with graphics by the great Isabel Valdez, PA, uh, just a fantastic uh, person that works with us on our show, made a bunch of graphics for this one, so check those out. And Paul, tell me, um, now with obesity, uh, we, we've done a great job as physicians using language that is respectful and not stigmatizing patients and uh, treating this as a chronic ailment. Uh, am I right or am I wrong? So I, I see you're employing the classic Watto reversal, where in <laughs> fact, we, we as physicians have not historically done a great job in terms of discussing obesity as an illness. Um, a lot of the times I feel like we sort of confer moral judgment along with it. Uh, we use language that is insensitive. We talk about it in a way that is... Um, describes it more as a failing than actually a disease process. And so one of the things that we were tasked with early on in the episode is actually describing it as we would any other disease. So this is a patient with obesity, not this patient is obese. And then also a, a point that I liked that was made early on is that morbid obesity is not a thing. Like we should probably just throw that out of our vocabulary. There's We don't talk about other morbid disease states like morbid cancer or morbid hypertension. Um, so you can certainly have severe obesity. You can have class three obesity, but calling it morbid obesity, it just is unnecessary and not terribly scientific and maybe serves to, to sort of broaden the stigma. Um, and I, I think actually, why don't I let you talk? You, you have a specific approach when you're sort of talking to patients about weight loss and, and about their weight. How, how do you frame that conversation? How do you even start that conversation, Matt? Yeah, I, I usually like to ask, is it okay if we talk about your weight? 
And if they say yes, my next question is, can you tell me like what's what's the heaviest weight you've ever been? How does that compare to where we are now? Because sometimes patient in front of you is 300 pounds and they'll be like, I was 450 pounds. So right. you should be congratulating that person, but you're sitting there thinking, okay, this person looks like they, they have weight to lose. And part of what that gets to is knowing where someone is in their weight loss journey. And also just the fact that uh, we are, I, I've, I've totally changed the way that I think about this because I think patients come, they've, they've often felt stigmatized. They've often tried a lot of things and they've started to plateau or they've gained weight despite doing it, or they've done well for a while and then started to regain, even if they kept up whatever good, good habits, lifestyle changes they've made. So I like to tell patients, listen, this is a chronic disease, we have to treat it like that. And we, we may have to have you on medications. And in some cases, patients get surgery for this. And right now, those are the best tools that we have. The medications are getting better. And it's not your fault. Like literally, your metabolism slows down and your body makes you feel more hungry when you start to lose weight because there's a set point And we are just trying to figure out how to overcome that with medications, but we're not there yet. And I, I think patients feel relieved when they hear that. Yeah, and, and and we talked about this before recording too. I, I do think one of the the biggest disservices that we've done to patients in terms of at least of obesity management is framing it as a simple math problem and just putting all the onus exactly on the patient just not trying hard enough. And if they just would have taken less calories in than what they required, they would have lost weight. It would just peel off because it's that easy, which is obviously not the case. And it is a far more complicated process than that. And your metabolism is working against you in a lot of ways that we don't still fully understand. So I, I just think that framework also has to be discarded pretty pretty quickly. And then. I know we've gotten some, I think, probably people that had, hadn't actually listened to our episodes because I think we've always been very respectful the way that we've talked about this. But I, I do think that it's important to also point out to the patient that we, we're not going to pick a specific weight loss target. Like you don't have to look a certain way to be metabolically healthy. You don't need to look like a Marvel superhero. We are trying to, uh, number one, get you feeling better. And then number two, we want your metabolic parameters to improve. So, Paul, like, what do you look at or what do you follow? How do you, do you have the conversation in a similar way? Yeah, it's why well, I've started to, uh, you know, because I, I, I think it gets to what are we after here exactly? You know, why it, like in anything, there's no utility in just treating an absolute number. How are we promoting health? And so the concerns that we have with with obesity are the comorbidities that tend to ride along with it. So, you know, following their glycemic control, is their A1C getting better? Um, we know that 10% weight loss confers a lot of blood pressure improvement. So is their blood pressure improving the way that we would like? What's their lipid panel look like? Are we seeing their transaminases trend down, uh, showing reduced inflammation that you might see with metabolic-associated fatty liver disease? Even things like symptoms of sleep apnea, have those improved? Like, I think those are the outcomes that we should probably be focusing on rather than actually trying to give a, a concrete number to get to because that's just fairly arbitrary. So what what does healthy look like for this patient? And I think we have fairly objective metrics we can follow yeah. that show improvements in health. The, the closest I'll come to putting a number on anything is I, I will just say to the patient, you know, we know from studies that if you lose 5% weight, you may have some metabolic changes favorable. If you lose 10%, a better chance that some of your metabolic parameters will improve. And, uh, you know, that's all I can tell you. And we'll just, we'll see how you're doing, how you're feeling. And we can use the tools available to us to try to get you there uh, and, and to try to improve these metabolic parameters that you just talked about. But, uh, and I guess, Paul, the, the, one of the things about the, you, you mentioned earlier, I just noticed once she started telling us not to use this morbid obesity as a diagnosis code, if you actually look, the, 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 the codes now say like 
class one, two, or three obesity with or without complications or serious comorbidities. And uh, I think that's a good way to think about it is, is like, are there comorbidities? Like, are they sick from this extra weight that's, yep. that's there? Um, because, because if they're not and they feel okay, then, you know, it's, it's, it's less clear, like how aggressive you need to be about that. And, um, I think patients appreciate when you can talk to them that way about it. Now, Paul, let's, let's start to talk a little bit about treatment here and tell me, Paul, are we, we're doing a great job, right? Prescribing medications. It's a high percentage of patients, like 99% of patients are, are on one of the approved therapies. Is that, <laughs> wow. Right? How are my yeah, stats? Yeah. No, I think that's true for almost any disease state. We're probably treating all of it 99% correctly. No, and obesity, I, you know, the, the point that you're making here is that we are notoriously under treating it, at least we're not using the tools that are available to us. So I, I think the number thrown out there was less than 1% of patients who would qualify for medications for management of obesity are actually receiving those medications. And we have a ton of things um, at our disposal. So we we actually didn't even start with the GLP-1 agonists, which are, are medications that I think we think of commonly just because we use those with our patients with diabetes so frequently. But we have a lot, a lot of options. So Matt, I'm going to ask you what, what, what things have changed in terms of your own practice? What are you reaching for now that you've had this episode and, and given some critical thought to how you would like to use medications to manage obesity? Yeah, and, and I want to. I think some of the audience members, uh, not many, but we we got some emails after this episode saying like, you guys didn't even talk about GLP one agonists. Well, we, we did. I I did listen back to it today, and she she it, we kind of brushed through it quickly, but we basically said we are going to talk about what's affordable to most patients. I know certain states you can get GLP one agonists if you're prescribing them for weight loss. In, in the place where I practice, Pennsylvania, I, I'm really only able to get GLP-1 agonists if the patient has type 2 diabetes. And uh, so for my patients with obesity and type 2 diabetes, they're in luck. I can put them on the medications and I can try to push the dose to get them uh, doing better from that perspective. But this conversation with Dr. Stanford was really about focusing on like what is she doing if if cost is an issue and she's not able to access these other medications? So she talked about she, the, the FDA medications. There's there's a couple of them: fentermine, topiramate, bupropion, naltrexone, and then there's like Orlistat, which she said I don't use much of that because most patients don't like oily underwear. So enough said. Well, we're, we're not going to talk more about that on this episode, Paul. So let's let's talk about. She said she splits up the medicines. And uh, she'll start one agent, titrate up. She may start a second agent, but she even if she said even if I had the combination pills available to me affordably, I probably wouldn't go right to them. She prefers to go yeah. one agent at a time. So, Paul, tell me about fent- fentermine because I I was always terrified of this drug. Yeah, no, same. And I, I think just to touch briefly on your earlier point, I think the other reason we didn't dwell on the GLP ones is because that's a class of medications we already have comfort with. And I think, you know, having comfort with these medications is going to be key to prescribing them. So I think that's probably one of the other reasons we sort of spend yeah. a little bit more time on some of the other classes. But to your to your question, so fentermine is one that has terrified me as well, historically. Um, I, you just, because patients with obesity um, are more likely to have high blood pressure, it's a medication I'm always a little bit reticent to start. I worry about it causing hypertension or tachycardia or sort of other, um, other sort of cardiovascular concerns. Um, but it, it turns out that those are 
not completely unfounded, but also probably overblown, I guess, is, is the point that Dr. Cody Stanford made. So in fact, bupropion, which we'll talk about, is probably more likely to actually negatively impact blood pressure than fentramine is. So Dr. Cody Stanford will start at the lowest dose and then increase every three months as needed. She goes low and she starts slow. She does monitor blood pressure, obviously, and she'll have the patients check at home um, over multiple times throughout the day just to get a sense of patterns and kind of make sure that she's not actually causing hypertension. But as she, as she mentioned, it's not something that happens very often. So she'll start at... Um, 15 milligrams per day, and then sort of increase it every three months as she gets to know the patients. And then if she, if she needs to, classically, we think of fentramine in combination with topiramate, um, though we talked about other reasons to start topiramate too. She may add on topiramate after the fact and start at 25 milligrams, then titrate that up. And that's a medication she tends to start at bedtime because there are uh, classic cognitive effects that go along with it. So lovingly referred to as dopamax by some patients because of the, the somnolence and confusion and, and brain fog that may come along with it. And that one, that's one where, because I had asked her about uh, some of the, you know, when does she think about getting a food psychologist involved? And she mentioned people that have issues with eating at nighttime, especially like binge eating at nighttime, topiramate seems to be a good one to, tr to try for them. And uh, so I have used it for that indication actually for patients before. And I, I think topiramate's another one that maybe because it cross purposes with migraines that internists pr at least... I think some internists are more comfortable using that one. So it's it's sure. a good choice to to try. Um, you just got to make sure the patient doesn't have history of kidney stones. Um, that would be one of the contraindications. But yeah, so fentramine and topiramate, you know, start low, go slow. You can pick one or the other. Um, you can layer them on over time. With fentramine, she, she did mention she goes about three months or so between dose changes. And, uh, and then you, you just got to check with your state. I think Ohio and Florida, I believe, were the two states where you might not be able to prescribe long term. You might have to take a break, go three months, take a break, go three months. Um, the, the next two, bupropion and naltrexone, Paul, you already mentioned that bupropion can elevate the blood pressure and the heart rate, um, maybe even more than fentramine does. And, uh, but I think as internists, this is another medicine where we should be comfortable with this. We use this for smoking cessation. We use this for depression. So I, I think this is a good choice. She says she starts at 150 of the sustained release twice a day. So that's the 12 hour version. And the reason she's doing that is to more closely approximate what would be found in that combination pill that's FDA approved for obesity. And then she goes up, the max dose might be, they're taking 300 in the morning and 150 in the evening. And of course, this is like expert opinion. This is, in her experience, what, what she said has worked. Um, and, and we go a little more in detail on it on the full episode. Uh, Paul, any other comments on that before we talk about naltrexone, which I, I know you have some experience with naltrexone for uh, prescribing for ad addiction medicine, but uh, what do you, have you used it yet for obesity? I, I have only because I prior to hearing this episode, I had actually used the um, the brand name combination medication with propion and naltrexone. So I, I've used it. I, I had heard anecdotally that it is good for patients who have that impulse eating that we described earlier. So there are one or two patients that I've tried it for that I've, I've had moderate success with. I think the evidence for it is not nearly as strong as for the other agents. So I, I've used it um, rarely, but, but a couple of times, but usually as part of the combination pill, not separately. So I, I look forward to having this sort of in my back pocket to use in a different kind of way now. Yeah. And you, so naltrexone, the way she said she uses it, she has patients take like a quarter tab and then they go up every week or so. And then to a quarter, t uh, by a quarter tab, um, until they're taking a half a tab twice a day. Um, and that's the way she does it. 
and and may it may be given in combination with bupropion. But if you if you try to prescribe the combination pills of fentermine, topiramate, or bupropion naltrexone, you run into this cost issue. Most of these medications, the combination medications I just mentioned, the weight loss is somewhere you know on the line of like six percent. Uh, that's the the average weight loss with them, compared to if if you get the GLP one agonist like semaglutide and push the dose way up, it's like a fifteen percent weight loss. And just more recently, this terzepatide, which is this GIP slash GLP-1 uh, agonist, Paul, that just came out this w- the week we're recording this anyway. And uh, that one is is like 20% weight 20%, loss. 20%, yeah. In a lot, like more than half the patients. It's I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, and I, I think maybe it's because we're finally getting medications that more address the underlying metabolic changes. Maybe we're changing the set point again. I don't know. Um I, I think the what what remains to be seen is like, I mean, do these patients, if they stop the medications, does the weight all come back? I think the answer is yes. At least some of it's going to come back. But I mean, this is a chronic disease thing, so it's uh, like we're treating. We're not often stopping blood pressure meds. And be like, oh right. look at that, the blood pressure went back up. I mean, I think we have to probably think of this as the same way, Paul. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. So. Any last comments about this, Paul? I, I think we've done, uh, as always, heroes work going through two really great episodes, and uh, I, I learned a lot going back through this again. Yeah, as much as I, I hate hearing this out of my own voice, I will say reviewing for these is always hugely helpful. So this kind of space learning is helpful for me, and I, and I hope it's also helpful for our listeners too. You know, one one last word of caution for the audience, because I always forget this, and I want to the the meds we just talked about uh, for obesity. All of them should not be used during pregnancy. So if your patient is uh, pregnant or plans to become pregnant, you should stop the medications. And, and Dr. Stanford actually said the GLP-1 agonist, she stops them a couple months because they're so long acting. She tries to stop them two months before they plan to conceive. So that, that'll be the last pearl we leave the audience with. And uh, Paul, will you take us to the outro? My pleasure, Matt. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I don't know what Spotify all is, Paul. Uh, <laughs> or you can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And a special thanks, Paul, to you for helping to write and produce this episode and to the whole Curbsiders team. Our episodes are produced and edited by Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And now, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.